Hey everybody, it's Paco. Quick language advisory. If you're at all offended by cursing or swearing or cussing or profanity or expletives or foul language, or if you're listening to this with kids around, you might want to skip this episode. It's a really good discussion, but for some reason, we swore like sailors in this one. Imagine there's a farmer checking in on his favorite cow. He's looking around his field, and he sees a piece of black and white newspaper caught up in some faraway bushes. It happens to have taken on a pretty damn convincing cow shape. If you were there, you'd probably agree it was a cow. So the farmer is like, sweet, my cow's still here. Now let's also say the cow actually is in the field, but hidden behind a hill where the farmer can't see it. If we ask the farmer, do you know if your cow is in the field? He'll say yes. Is he right? Does he know it's there? Maybe we'll find out on today's show. Hey everyone, welcome to You've Got It All Wrong, a philosophy podcast for handsome people like you. I'm Paco Allen. I'm Mark Sanders. And I'm Chad Allen. Aqua's story is a version of what's called the Gettier Problem, named after the American philosopher Edmund Gettier, who first wrote about it in 1963. In the interest of using big words, we should note that this is a problem in the study of epistemology, the field of philosophy that deals with knowledge, which can be summed up as an attempt to answer the question, how do we know what we know? So anyway, up until Gettier, knowledge was widely defined as a justified true belief. We could be said to know X if we were justified in believing X and if X was true. Just go back to the cow example for a minute. Let's look at the farmer's belief. We can say it's justified because the piece of paper from his vantage point looks a lot like a cow. If you or I were there, we'd say it was a cow too. So assuming we place some trust in our senses, we can say we are justified in believing the cow is there. And guess what? There actually is a cow in the field, so the farmer's belief is also true. So he has a justified true belief. Thus, according to the traditional definition of knowledge, he knows the cow is in the field. But the whole point of the Gettier problems, like this one, is that it just seems wrong to say that the farmer knows the cow is in the field. It's just a happy coincidence that his belief is both justified and true. And if that's the case, then you can have a justified true belief and not have it add up to knowledge. So now our traditional definition of knowledge, of what it means to know something, is in peril. And that's a big problem for epistemology, you guys. So what are we going to do? How do you want to respond to Gettier? Do we have to rethink our definition of knowledge? Should we just wait for this to all go away? Should we have another gin and tonic? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think from a practical point, yeah, like we could just like everybody can turn the podcast off right now and ignore this (laughs) when everybody's walking around in their daily life. I mean, this is one of those topics that I think is like, fully self-contained in the world of philosophy, you know, like some of the other things that we've talked about. Definitely people feel like, you know, is it, when you start to dissect them, that there's like a real world practical application on a daily basis, um, you know, to some of these topics. Th- this one is like a weird one because it's, it, it you know, it's, it, it is a really interesting, really critical aspect of, you know, what it is to be human and, and what it is to know things, but it is also almost completely contained within the Pretty academic, yeah, yeah. like within the academic world of of philosophy. And I think the other thing I would say to the to the listeners out there is that I would expect to get out of this podcast exactly what everybody got out of some of the original source material of this topic, which is some of Plato's writings, which is like you won't come out of this having a defined position. The original writings that Gettier refers to oh, it's Gettier? It's Gettier. <laughs> um, I'm going to keep saying Gettier. <laughs> the, I, I would like to put a vote in for Get Along. <laughs> the um, you know the, ori- the, the original um, the original dialogue from Plato that Gettier refers to, um, you know, when he refers to justified true belief or JTB. At the end of that, there is no final conclusion like there are in, in many things in philosophy. But I, I think, again, unlike some of the other topics we covered, where 
I think some of us, at least, you know, here in, in, in podcast studio, walk away from it thinking like, all right, here's my opinion on this. And this is what I believe in terms of the potential viewpoints that you can have on a particular topic. This is one where I feel like you kind of walk away from it just going, I don't know. Right. Well, maybe you don't. I don't. I have a pretty clear Okay. opinion on this well i mean but. like Pla- plato <laughs> walked away from the topic and was just like Meh. yeah, yeah he, but he, he wasn't that smart he wasn't he's no chad <laughs> allen <laughs> yeah <laughs> okay so um uh, th- this is also a topic that i think i had to go over like a number of times to get like a super clear understanding in my head of the problem yeah that i could repeat pretty easily to myself how do you know what you know and how can you be sure of the things that you think yeah. you know Descartes comes into this, but I'm sure we'll probably cover off on that on a, a separate podcast. But Chad, do you want to just give a brief overview of what you understand to be epistemology in the classical sense? Not really, no. <laughs> <laughs> it's the study of defining how you know what you know, what is knowable. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty broad topic. Isn't the joke that anytime you, you click on a link on uh, Wikipedia, if you click on enough related links, you'll get back to philosophy and eventually you get to epistemology. <laughs> well, that sounds about right. Yeah. That's like a Kevin Bacon. Like <laughs> You're always two degrees, degrees six, from six degrees epistemology. epistemology. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that should be a that would be a great party game. Six degrees of epistemology. Well, there is there is a game, a, a wiki race, where uh, everyone in the room with a computer has to, you know, a, a random word is picked out, like dandelion or Hitler. Then it's like people have to get to that topic from the front page of Wikipedia without typing stuff in, just by following links. Because otherwise, I would just type epistemology, yeah. and I'd be. What are the front links on Wikipedia? Well, yeah. what, they change every day. That's the thing. That's why it makes it so, you know, but you have to think, well, okay, like there's a there's a country singer, there's an iceberg. Okay, like what will get me to a topic that's related and linked to that topic? And those topic? are the two topics you pick are dandelions and Hitler. Remind me to never are, play this game with are you. The, <laughs> are those on like the two ends of some sort of weird spectrum in your brain? <laughs> things, that, things that are nice and things that are terrible. I believe both of them have extensive wikipedia pages <laughs> wow um yeah so I, I, anyways to get back on track you know i think that that what everybody who's been talking about this topic from plato to getier to us and i'd like to put us in the same like <laughs> right now just put us in the same category as those two those two people um is you know like what what kind of rules can we set up to evaluate something that you think you know Right. As, a, as a piece of knowledge to say, like, right. is that really knowledge or not? Right. And so, I, honestly, like, there, you can start to see how there's some sort of real-world application here or at least some, like, tangible desire to have a definition of knowledge, right? Because we want to we wanna be able to say, like, hey, we, we know that— I'd know Mark's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> and here's why. It's right. a justified yeah. true belief. Right. Because in common language, we use we uh, recycle a lot of words to mean um, very different things, but for the yeah. same reason. Well, so in philosophy of science, for example, it's kind of important to know, to have a definition of knowledge, right? Like, how do we know that Bernoulli's principle is true? Or, or how do we know that, you know, pick your favorite axiom of physics, right? Like, how do we know it's true? We, ooh, we, we have ooh a... my favorite axiom of physics. <laughs> how do I choose? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, going to be tough. Well, let's not get that. <laughs> Welcome to our physics we podcast. We don't have the time. <laughs> wasn't, wasn't there an episode of The Simpsons where there's, there's a rapper and he points a Glock at someone and he says, it's axiomatic, biatch. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. <clears throat> See the show notes if I find it. Yeah, so... Um, it's, called, it's called a proof, right? Like in, in that term, in scientific and mathematical literature, the idea of knowledge is defined as an agreed-upon objective proof. Right, right. As opposed to a truth, which could be not related to practical experiment. It could be related to an axiom that, that cannot be proven, in which case the truth has to be a belief in that sense, right? Well, yeah. I, Maybe I'm getting too down, far down the rabbit hole already. Yeah, I feel like at that point it's a belief and, and not a truth, and... In the context of this discussion, belief is one component, one requirement of knowledge, true belief. Right. But then you also have justification and right. truth. Yeah. I mean, I guess if you go all the way, if we can try to uh, back out of Mark's rabbit hole, uh, which I would love to go down later, but it was getting pretty deep. Uh 
like that could the core issue here is that you know we do it does seem like in order for us to know something we have to have a justification for believing it and in order for us to know something that thing has to be true right and that's the intuition that the gettier problems are trying to unwind yeah i mean again like i think the one thing that i at the front of this i said that there were some things about this that are different than some of the other topics we talked about but i think the one thing that is similar is it, you know, it's it is the kind of dissection of something that we think we intuitively understand. Right. But when you start to unpack it and look at it harder, it's like there are things in your life that you think that you know and that you think you have knowledge of. But when you start to question someone or yourself about like, well, how like how do you know that and how do you have knowledge of that thing? Your ability to describe how it is that that is knowledge it just becomes really difficult to yeah like clearly explain it's like it's like heuristics if you had a, a light switch in your garage and every time you went into your dark garage you flicked the light switch and the light went on you did that once a day for 20 years you'd have a pretty strong belief that you flicking that light switch turned on that light but it could be totally independent it could right. be your your buildings getting struck by lightning at exactly right. that point every <laughs> single day for 20 years <laughs> Right. It's a heuristic. It's a bias. It's a, <laughs> right. Like fucking Thor's your neighbor or something. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, Mark's so, going into his garage again. <laughs> <laughs> I will fuck with you, mortal. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, well, we could talk about a couple of ways that people have tried to sort of salvage uh, the definition of knowledge, right? Because what's happening here is that, that Gettier is trying to tell us, like, hey, like, we no longer have. A definition of what it means to know something so we're in trouble yeah. because now we have this word we use knowledge and we thought we had a definition for it and now we don't so what are we going to yeah. do well, and so, so part of this story is like philosophers trying to construct a definition of knowledge that copes with these gettier style problems right. and i think that we've like covered this already but i think it, i think it is one of those things that's it's a it's a weird topic and i think it deserves repeating what that classic definition of knowledge was pre-Gettier. And, you know, he kind of claims that it comes from Plato, although in the source material that he's referencing, like I said, at the end of that dialogue, everybody that's involved in it comes out of there not having an agreed upon understanding of what knowledge is. But Gettier still kind of like goes back to that as his definition of what knowledge is, which is knowledge is based on having a justified, true belief so there's like three components of it right yeah and i think we should talk about a few ways that people have tried to sort of reconstruct a definition of knowledge that uh, avoids these gettier problems or that kind of avoids the critique that was put forward by gettier one of the first ones one of the, one of the kind of like early attempts to overcome uh, this problem was to say we need some additional conditions so in addition for in addition to a belief being justified and true, it has to have some other third condition that will help us overcome these kind of gettier objections. One of the early proposals was, well, let's say that a condition of, of knowledge is that the thing that caused your belief has to actually be the thing that would cause your belief to be true. Right. So like the, the only thing that can so it's sort of like, it only counts as knowledge if the cow itself caused you to believe that the cow is in the field uh, and not uh, a piece of paper. Right, right. So it's like it's got to be a belief. It's got to be justified. That justification has to be caused by the actual thing that I am trying to possess knowledge of. Right. And it has to be true. Directly. Right. So, Which is kind of like the like the third and fourth versions of those things. Like the third and fourth criteria are like get really gray. Well, yeah. So Al So this is kind of like... Uh, Alvin Moore is a philosopher who put forward one of these early. Oh yeah, um, writer of the Watchmen. <laughs> Alvin, Alvin Moore. Alvin Moore, yeah, yeah creator of the Watchmen right, and yeah, yeah. famous epistemologist. <laughs> uh, I, I think the actual author of uh, the Watchmen is quite a famous epistemologist <laughs> in his own right. <laughs> um, so he said that that, for example, that your belief had to be caused by a reliable process, so a process that flowed from the thing that you have a belief about. And so that the in the example of the cow, like there's no reliable process that f flows from the thing that you have a belief about the cow. There's no reliable process that flows from that to you. 
Yeah. I mean, and I think this is why that, that doesn't work is because I think that most people intuitively would say the process was reliable. Like you were looking at something with your eyeballs, like the a sensory, right. a sensory aspect, you know, that you use, you know, that most people use every day, like mm-hmm. most of the day to understand what the world is like around them. And intuitively, like if I look at something and you look at something and Mark looks at something and we all think we're looking at the same thing, we all think we're looking at a cow. Like, how is that not considered intuitively a reliable process? Like at that point, like, fuck the word reliable. Like, let's <laughs> redefine that thing. Well, yeah. I mean, the, the so where most people, where the primary critique of this response, of, of Alvin Moore's response and other ones like it, is that when you, because now we have to unpack the meaning of reliable process, to your point, right? Mm-hmm. And And where you're going to end up is a reliable process is the one that causes me to have a true belief, right? Right. Because it's going to turn out that the only really reliable process for, for causing you to believe in the cow is like the existence of the cow, like all other processes will be unreliable. And so now we have a circular definition. And that description is, um, I believe, would it be correct in philosophical terms to to refer to that as uh, uh, irreducible? You're, you're, you're reducing it down to, to the most, um, core elements of the of the actual process that you would use and it seems like in some specific cases depending on whether or not the actual thing that i was trying to possess knowledge of influenced my belief in one case my eyeballs might be right and my in another case my eyeballs might be wrong so the same process in two different cases are unreliable like i look at you you're across the room i see you drinking i think i possess knowledge of you consuming water in another case i'm in a desert looking at a mirage and i think that's water and it's not i'm using the same process in both of those situations to create my belief that something's true and possess knowledge of it right but in one case that process works just because it's true and in another case it doesn't because it happens right. to not right. be true. And, and, and there's lots of processes i think in terms of uh people i'm sure would be familiar with uh, the work of uh, arthur conan doyle like sherlock holmes had reliable processes and the one that is like most often talked about in terms of how he would get to truths punching beliefs right <laughs> well, i mean t- based on the new movies his, <laughs> punching. his, his process for his process for for discovering things is ramp speed camera work and punching. Right. Yes. The 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 punching hypothesis is uh, <laughs> well in the just just this is a tangent, but in the original novels, he was quite a boxer. Oh. He, he would uh, he would go under cover and he, uh, he would uh, often yeah, th- th- it was talked about he would jab with his left and not swing with his right because that's how a gentleman fought. Marcus of Queensbury rules. <laughs> so so the the process I'm talking about is the the idea of deductive reasoning. Um, in the idea in the the example you gave of like you know your eyes looking at a you know a certain thing like deductive reasoning is in the words of Conan Doyle removing every other. Um, possible interpretation until you're left with whatever's um, left, and that is the truth, because you've you've exhausted all other possibilities. Which technically, the what Holmes did in the novels wasn't deductive reasoning, because he would often <laughs> make these inductive loops, leaps, right. and he would like, oh, there's mud on his boots, and that the only place the mud is is on the south bank of the Thames. Therefore, you must have gone to the south bank of the Thames. No, someone else could have been wearing the boots. They could have moved the mud. Like right. he's making all of these these leaps around the motherfucker beliefs. knew his mud though. <laughs> That is South Bank Thames bud. So there's lots of processes and some of them are more uh, flawed than others. Right. Okay, so let's throw that one out. Right. So <laughs> so that was option one for resolving the the Gettier problems. Man, the Gettier problems. Can't wait for number two. Uh, so is, no, it, is, then, it, is, it, is it in with a bullet? <laughs> no. <laughs> number two, uh, in with uh, a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> the, so there was so there is this other thread which is we need to alter what we mean by justified so uh, this may seem similar at first but but the notion is um the definition of knowledge as a justified true belief is the right definition but the gettier problems show us that we just need a tighter definition of what it means for uh belief to be justified so in the case of the paper, you know, we would say, all right, well, there, you weren't justified because your senses misled you. And so we need a stronger definition of what it means for something to be justified. And if we layer that on top of the justified true belief definition of knowledge, then we'll 
will it get somewhere. So does that mean like I should have been more diligent in my exploration of whether or not I had knowledge of the cow right. being in the field? Like I should, I should have done more than just looked out in the field and saw something that I thought was the cow. I should have like right. actually, like I should have maybe gotten my eyes. Like I should go to the optometrist right. first, get my eyes checked. Is my vision good? Right. right? Because I'm making it an I'm making an assumption that my eyes work. Right. Like I yeah. think the, is it this is this point comes down to like the assumptions that you're making when you believe that you're justified. In yeah. So I assume that my eyes work. Right. Yeah. I assume. And this is where it gets ridiculous. I assume that the cow didn't change color overnight. Right. Right. Like I assume that someone hasn't brought their cow into my field. Right. I assume that there isn't a painting of a cow out there. Like all the other possibilities that could exist that could like wreck my justification of believing there's a, my cow is in the field by looking at it. I have to investigate all those before right, which I can. You're, which like, you're never going to do. And, and yeah. basically, this is like a slippery slope to skepticism because what you're going to say is, you know what? I can I it, I can't trust my perception of the cow being in the field. Like there could always be something undermining my senses. There could, you know, my neighbor could have always put a fake cow in there. There could have been like a sweet hologram Fucking of a Thor. cow with his <laughs> with his lightning bolts to my light bulb when and I his, flick on my lights and his fake cows. cows. <laughs> well, he is a god. Right? <laughs> this sounds more like Loki's work. Yes. Yeah, trust, oh man, Loki trust dressing up, up as Thor. Thor. <laughs> that is so Loki. <laughs> right. So Loki could always be yeah. messing with you, right? Mm -hmm. And so. The the problem of trying to like shore up the the definition of of what counts as a justified belief in order to fix this problem is that you're just never going to get a good enough definition. Yeah, I mean, at some point, like, and and again, another episode. At some point, you like slip back to Descartes and say, like, the only thing I can know right. is that in some way, shape, or form, I exist. Right, and that's the ultimate, like, yeah. skeptical yeah. with a capital S, like, position. And that's where I think you will end up if you try to counter the Gettier problem in this way um, by saying that we, you know, we need to have a better idea of what it yeah. means for something to be like justified. Even if you and I and Mark are also like, we looked at it, we thought it was there, we took the time yeah. to walk not across the enough. field. It's not a painting. It's not my neighbor's cow. It could be a fucking clone or it could be a hologram or some shit. Like your senses can always be unreliable. It's like the blind man and the elephant. Yeah. They're all seeing different things, seeing, quote unquote. What's the blind man and the elephant? No, you can't just throw that in the podcast. <laughs> yeah. and like, what, what well, it's this group, group of blind men and they, they, they encounter something in the road and like one of the blind men comes up and he grabs his trunk. Is this a true story? Yeah, well, this is this is an aphorism. <laughs> uh, and and the, the first blind man said like, okay, like there's something in front of it. It's this long, round, muscular cylinder of the trunk. And another guy walks up and he touches the sides like, no, no, it's a large wall-like substance because it's touching the side. Then, you know, one touches the soft, flappy ear and it's like, no, no, it's a large, so, so they're all perceiving only a portion of of the reality that they're able to interact with based on the nature of their perceptions. Right. Elephants are weird. Is that kind of like the side <laughs> side plot of that story? Elephants are big. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, re really had to hold myself back on the giant penis jokes there at the beginning of that. <laughs> well, yeah, you you would. <laughs> there were two different blind guys who basically yeah. said the same thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but we're touching different parts of that. One. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, Welcome to okay. our zoology podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Elephant erotica section. <laughs> All right. So two down. The third one. What's the third oh, option for dealing good. with? Third option with dealing with Gideon. The third option is to basically say fuck it. Like that. That this is a bankrupt enterprise. There, and there are a few versions of this. One is to say we have to take the concept of knowledge as sort of like axiomatic and we can't be attempting to like have knowledge about knowledge, essentially, that like we're trying to build a definition uh, for a sort of fundamental first principle that's just never going to get anywhere. Yeah. In, in Gödel Escherbach, you know, Gödel's greatest discovery, or maybe one of them, is the fact that he did establish the fact that there are many um, true axiomatic beliefs and understandings in mathematics, in pure abstract mathematics, that uh, all the underpinnings of our, of our everything from, you know, pure integer cardinal numbers mm -hmm. all the way up through very sophisticated maths refer to, but uh, they cannot be proven. They are 100% true, but they also can never be proven. Right. 
Yeah, I mean, I don't feel so bad punting on this because, you know, as I said earlier, we're already putting ourselves in the same category as Plato and Socrates and Gettier, and those motherfuckers punted on this. Right. Like they... There's a, a mathematician and an engineer who both like this uh, girl in their class. Uh, the mathematician uh, quotes the Zeno paradox. Is this a true story? Uh, no, this isn't a true did story. Sting, is... Did Sting write a song about this? <laughs> <laughs> this is uh, this is an aphorism. No, that's a Nabokov. <laughs> so the the mathematician quoting Zeno's paradox, where uh, as you approach uh, a body, uh, the distance between you and that destination is halved every time, and the mathematician is is very level on because he tells the engineer that. Uh, it's unfortunate because I'll never arrive at her because the distance will always be. This is their student. No, this this is two students, but uh. both who both who both like in this this one girl okay. in the class. Uh, okay, and they they both. I they, thought you said professors, and I was like, this no, story no. is super creepy. Why is it got to be creepy? <laughs> <laughs> two, two students, two okay. students, and the mathematician is is lovelorn because he 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 lets the engineer his buddy know that he'll never get to her because the distance between him and her will always be. Um, mm-hmm. halved and mm-hmm. then go to an infinitely small amount of distance. Uh, and the engineer's response is, I think I can get close enough for practical purposes. That's, that's, <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's the idea of the pragmatic approach to our, our use What's of he mean by practical purposes, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, right. So, um, so if you think about how the pragmatists would approach this problem um in particular if you think about how william james who was kind of the um father of of the pragmatic approach in philosophy in the 20th century um it, he probably would have said that uh a belief is true if holding that belief in the law over the long run uh, has fruitful consequences so he probably would have said that your belief that the that the cow is in the field is true uh because over the long run that's a belief that would have proved fruitful for us because the cow was in fact in the field so if we had for example made a deal to sell the cow to someone uh our belief that the cow was in the field would have been fruitful because when we actually went to sell it we would have we would have found it and we would have been able to sell it um and so uh, truth is sort of guided by providing of outcomes that are um, reliable and and that we can expect to occur over yeah. time. The, the other notable pragmatist of the 20th century, Bruce Lee, right. uh, <laughs> put, uh, developed his own martial art based on a variety of techniques from across a, a number of disciplines referred to as Jeet Kune Do, which loosely translated meant the way of whatever works. <laughs> Is that yeah. true? Yeah. That's true. <laughs> you got a headbutt the guy? Headbutt the guy. What is it called? Jeet Kune Do. Jeet Kune Do? I never saw Bruce Lee headbutt a guy. Yeah. <laughs> it, just doesn't mean, it doesn't mean it wasn't a truth. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, as as much as I like to be a pragmatist in, in a lot of aspects of my life, that seems like a pretty, like, squishy dodge to me. Really? Yeah. So you don't think that we can just say that uh, you... So I, I think well, we, you, you can't just... I, I think I would say, you know what? Good enough. That yeah. farmer knew that his cow, cow was in the field. Yeah, I mean, I guess like I, I think this is like a place where where you and I tend to disagree a lot on these types of topics, which is I think it's like it's really hard to live your life trying to say that I only have knowledge of things like based on Gettier's definition of knowledge. Um, like it's a really impractical way to live your life, like from a moment to moment yeah. basis. But I also think that the idea that that guy knew that his cow was in the field is total bullshit. Like he didn't, he didn't, he was fucking lucky. It was an accident. But like, this is, this is, this is where I think it's how we live our daily lives does not match up to the like logical analysis of ideas like knowledge. But, but if you, the, the one reason why you'd want to try to get a handle on this is if you were to try to build a, uh, form of artificial intelligence that needed a sense of, of knowledge in of its own right so it could learn and so it could communicate and make decisions based on what it knew to be true. So in that regard, it's, it's a practical endeavor to look at the actual fundamentals of, of what knowledge is so we can make use of that information elsewhere. Right, but would you would you try and write a program that, that takes the pragmatic approach to it where it's like, 
hey, like if this calculation you're running well, that is, is coincidentally, now. Like coincidentally if you train true. up a neural network, like that's exactly what you do, right? You're looking for the pragmatic outcome of that network to be able to predict certain events or answer certain questions in a reliable way. And like you don't you don't need to write like in your program for your neural network, you don't have to like include a section at the beginning of it that has like a definition of knowledge. Right. It just it learns over time by finding the principles that generally lead to the outcomes that it's seeking. Through through heuristics. Well yeah. maybe the fucking Google driverless car has a better like has more knowledge than we do. More knowledge than you do, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> like like uh, Peter Novig, the uh, the guy at Google in charge of um, uh, machine translation and artificial intelligence, um, uh, talks about how none of the systems that, that they use to translate um, written and spoken language understand those languages in any way. Right. They don't have any knowledge of them. They're just looking for patterns. How much of these words and symbols and sounds match what we know as understood and uh, and formulated words and meaning and sound right. over here and, and then it's just a question of probability right all right this is about all i can take on okay this. yeah let's um, uh, shut this part and down. <laughs> uh i already folded us into the same category as plato and Gettier, and i'm happy to punt on it which is what plato, exactly what they did basically. which is what plato, and well, what plato did, did yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah so and just, well but i mean plato play uh, go ahead well, I was just going to say, just just to make sure that we don't think of it as purely a uh, a, a Western white uh, uh, philosophical discussion. There's plenty of ideas from ancient India and China around Buddhism and the practices of understanding that the world is also as unknowable for exactly the same reasons outside of the the, the uh, Greco-Roman tradition of philosophy as well. So it's not the fact that those are the only individuals who came to those conclusions. So I just wanted to add that in there. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. But all men, Pla- of course. Plato punted. <laughs> all right, well, and, that's fine. And 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 according to and according to Plato, so did Socrates. <laughs> <laughs> so we're following in a long yeah. line of uh, a long tradition of really smart people punting on this question. Yeah, may- may- maybe Socrates didn't, but the only person to write it down was Plato. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um, I mean, where this whole thing started was from uh, Plato's dialogue. Theaetetus, which uh, is named after one of the characters in the dialogue, which is a real person. I mean, this is like his dialogues were super, super Inception-like where there would be people talking about conversations about other people and there would be conversations within conversations. But supposedly Socrates, that, that, that whole dialogue ends with Socrates saying, we are better off knowing what something is not as this will help us determine at a later time what it is, which is basically like, oh. <laughs> I love it. I, so I got to go now. My, uh, my, I need to check in my cow. Yeah. Is that cool? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. We just wanted to take a minute, thank everyone for listening, and ask for a few minutes of your time to help us out. If you like the show and want to help us spread the good word, the best thing you can do is head over to iTunes and give us a review. And while you're there, you might as well subscribe to the show. I have a justified, true belief that ratings, reviews, and subscriptions are the primary factors that determine whether we get noticed and give us the best chance of making this thing successful. We really appreciate the support. All right, now back to the show. As regular listeners know, we like to use the second half of the show to step back from the philosophical discussion and just talk about some of the things that got us interested in the topic. Uh, what do you got, Chad? Uh, so I actually like this topic a lot because the backstory is pretty interesting. So um, as we said at the beginning of the show, uh, Edmund Gettier, Gettier uh, wrote uh, this paper in 1963 in which he posited uh, his original uh, set of Gettier problems. Um, it was, it's the only paper that Gettier ever wrote. It's three pages long, but it had, I've heard two and a half, <laughs> two and a half. Yeah. It, well, it depends because double spaced. So he was up <laughs> with two inch margins. He, so he was a, he was a, a professor at, at Wayne state university. Um, uh, our papa's, our papa's, yeah, our, our papa went to school there. <laughs> Uh, 
that so his his first job sixty eight was that at fucking school with with uh, Edmund yeah, Gettier. <laughs> Uh, I don't know. So he's a professor emeritus at uh, University of Massachusetts at Amherst now, and that's where he spent most of his career. But I don't know uh, when he when he moved from Wayne State to UMass. Was it Stately Wayne State? Is that what they refer to it as? Or am I thinking of Stately Wayne Manor? You're thinking of Stately Wayne Manor, <laughs> <laughs> which is where Batman went to school. Did Edmund Gettier and Batman go to school together? Uh, that's no. why he only wrote one but, paper. He's busy but defending what I'm Gotham. Fucking saying is that our dad might have smoked weed with Edmund Gettier <laughs> at Wayne State. Oh my God! We all right. We're gonna have to. This will be in in the show notes. We'll either confirm or deny that our dad smoked weed with Edmund Gettier. <laughs> I could I could imagine him getting really angry at him. So like, get here, what's your problem? Man, that gives me a great idea for a paper. Uh, so so uh, basically, Gettier's buddies uh, at, at Wayne State, w- which was his first job. Which is uh, better than our dad. No, like, no. well, okay. Alvin Plantica okay. and like other, he, he actually w- uh, was a professor at Wayne State when some other young, uh, well-known philosophers were, were also young professors there. And, and he after his first couple of years there he hadn't published anything and so his buddies were like ed you gotta publish something or you're not you're gonna get fired basically they were like right you gotta write something or you're out of here and he was like oh like he had this one idea and so he he wrote this paper it was he was like i don't know shit what do i know (laughs) i don't know anything I don't Wait even know how to. I don't even know how I would go about proving that I know anything. And so the story that Plantinga tells, which is you know potentially apocryphal, is that uh, is that Gettier had the paper published in Spanish in a journal in South America <laughs> because he wanted to be able to. Yeah, put... It was like in fucking cat cat fancy, gato fancy. <laughs> like because well he he wanted to be able to put it uh, on his uh, CV for the review committee. So What's the CV. Curriculum vitae resume. Okay. Yeah, okay, it's like a resume for academics. Because well, he because he wanted he he needed to demonstrate to uh, to the faculty at Wayne State that he yeah. had published something, but he didn't want anyone to read it yeah. because it he thought funny. it was really terrible. <laughs> two, and a, two and a half page of double space, so, two inch margin <laughs> garbage. <laughs> but uh, but uh, 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 as this as the story has it, uh, a- after a couple of his friends read it, they were like, "Oh no, this is this is actually really good." Did they, did they read Spanish? These, no, these right. he let them read the English version, <laughs> uh, and so he, he so it was published. Um, I think it was published in Analysis. Uh, was the American journal that it was published in, and it became this huge touchstone in twentieth century epistemology. It's one of the top ten most cited philosophy articles of the 20th century so like bang for buck number of citations to number of pages this is probably by some arguments like the most important philosophical paper of the 20th century but dude also like rode that the rest of his career right yeah he did so yes that was the only paper that he ever published I mean, he was a tenured professor at, at UMass, so I so mean, he, he didn't have to write anything at that point. He, he didn't. This paper was so earth-shattering in a really like nerdy philosophical way. It generated so much conversation and so much discussion that he was basically able to like sort of ride that wave for the rest of his career. I don't think you could find another academic philosopher who was so well known and so oft cited for having written so little i mean he wrote it's like if one the, paper it's, it's like if the wachowskis never made a movie after <laughs> the matrix <laughs> oh that would have been, have been such great. a good thing <laughs> i mean you could imagine uh getting it the, uh, based on based on the the epilogue to him writing this paper and what he's done since you can imagine if he wrote more papers they would have been the matrix two and the matrix <laughs> <Right>. three <laughs> of philosophy right so he he did the right yeah, thing, yeah. No, and you, you think that maybe someone in in South America in Spanish is reading <laughs> the second one and like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't, even in Spanish, this isn't, this isn't working for me. But so I mean, the other weird thing though too is that you know, like one of the foundations of that two and a half page double space two inch margin <laughs> paper is that oh hey, well like Plato says that this is knowledge, right? And he goes back to the justified true belief foundation, right? But there's three arguments in Plato's dialogue, which is a story of two ancient Greek dudes talking about three other about a conversation that they overheard years ago of three other ancient Greek dudes. 
it's like a weird nested inception story right like, of, which i guess of, all of plato's dialogues were hey there's let me tell you this story about these two guys talking and these two guys talking one of them overheard this other story <laughs> that he's going to recount to these other yeah. guys about these other three guys because the practice that like, he didn't write it down as a, as a means to kind of like transmit knowledge he wrote it down as a way to express the idea that dialogue is the way that you you have these learnings you you engage in a practice yeah. of discussing and writing was just a side effect well and supposedly there's also like a bunch of other like nested meanings in there which people have been trying to interpret interpret for centuries about supposedly there's commentary on the idea of juries and people's recollections of things right. and how accurate those are like there's supposed to be a bunch of this like a deeper cultural subtext in a lot of that but the theaetetus which is named after the one of the main characters in this story who's the story within a story character they go through three different basically arguments for what knowledge is and one of them is kind of justified true belief right. and like that gets like scrapped along with the other two arguments so it's weird that Gettier comes along and he's like, hey, this is the understood millennia old understanding of what knowledge is. Right. It's justified true belief. And he cites Plato, who's Plato citing Socrates. And even going back that far, that was not there. Like there was no agreement whatsoever yeah. about justified true belief being the foundation of knowledge. In fact, it's kind of in there to say this is the closest you can get. And even that's unreliable. Right. So there's like this weird idea that Gideon sort of like pulled a fast one on everyone and sort of set it up that justified true belief was the definition of knowledge and then like poked a big hole in that it depends what the definition of is is <laughs> that's your impersonation <laughs> yeah, of bill clinton <laughs> all right i want all of i want all of our british <laughs> listeners to write in and let us know if that sounded like bill clinton and i want our american writers to write See, in you 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 knew who i was talking about so well, could, but, not so, be, so, not not because of the impersonation i just want to be clear right now it's not because of the quality of the impersonation <laughs> Just because everyone knows who said that. <laughs> oh, man. But there's actually another, I think, American political reference, which is uh, tangentially relevant here, which is Donald Rumsfeld's uh, famous uh, uh, quip known, about... Unknown knowns and unknown unknowns. Well, There's the... certain known unknowns, and then there are unknown unknowns, and it's like... Well, that's not accurate, though, right? There was no yellow cake. <laughs> and aluminum tubes are used for all kinds of shit. <laughs> Welcome to our philosophy podcast and our political <laughs> podcast. Yeah, so, if you're a fucking Donald Rumsfeld fan, unsubscribe right now. <laughs> okay, and so there's this famous uh, press conference, right, where, where Donald Rumsfeld is talking about knowledge. Uh, and he, he runs through sort of like the four categories of knowledge. Well, he's, I know he's kind of talking about, he ends up talking about knowledge, but he's trying to use fucking dodge questions. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. But it ends up he's, in this really weird, like philosophical right. area. I mean, of... he's, he's, he's trying to dodge the question of, uh, did you, yeah. did you really, did, did you, you know, know, did you know there were WMDs? And he's like, Oh no, <laughs> knowledge. <laughs> right. Let's, so he says, knowledge so he, is a funny let's thing. Let's back it all up, everybody. <laughs> so he says, you know, so he says, look, there are the there are the known knowns, right? The things that you know, you know. There are the known unknowns, which are things that you know you don't know, right? Yep. There are the unknown unknowns, which are just like gaps in your field of knowledge, right? You just you don't know what you don't. You don't know, know them, but you also don't know that you don't know them, right? And then, he, and those are sort of three things that everybody kind of talks about. And then Donald Rumsfeld tries to layer in this fourth thing: the unknown knowns. And is in, in his original memo to himself, he says that the unknown and, knowns. P.S. <laughs> Who the fuck writes memos to them? This is a, what you're describing is a diary. Donald Rumsfeld had a diary. I, I, I like to, I like a to memo think to yourself. <laughs> you can't write a memo to yourself. I well, think by okay. the definition of what a memo is, Donald Rumsfeld had an audio diary. I misspoke. Yeah, he meant these memos to to many of them to be for consumption by his staff and other members of the administration. His, his staff of philosophers. <laughs> Who the fuck is he? Let's tune into Donald Rumsfeld Radio this afternoon. Uh, oh my god, we should definitely my, have him on the podcast. My afternoon tea. I'm gonna sip my afternoon tea and listen to a little. W R M F L D. So, so what was the unknown? So, knowns? so in so in his original memo, he re, he he said that the unknown knowns were things that you think you know that it turns out you did not know. 
So I, I think I know X, but it turns out that I didn't know X. <laughs> oh, this right? is pretty, yeah, like WMD. Right. I thought I knew WMD <laughs> right. in Iraq. Yep. Turns out I didn't. I thought I knew my cow was in the field. Yep. Turns, turns out, out I didn't. didn't. Okay, so then cow of mass so destruction. He, it, this comes up again in in his interview with with Errol Morris um, in the in the film Unknown Knowns, and uh, Errol Morris asks him about it, and, and he actually redefines it on the spot. And Rumsfeld says the unknown knowns are things that you may possibly know that you don't know you know in. And so in the first formulation of it, where he says things that you think you know that it turns out that you did not, you actually have less knowledge rather than more. You thought you knew something, but yep. it turns out that you yep. didn't. And a lot of people would be like, yeah, okay, I've done that. Right. And then, but when he's talking about it in the film, he says, no, 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 the unknown knowns are the, are the things that you, uh, that you know. You actually do know, but you just didn't know that you knew them. And so yep. in, in that formulation, you actually have more knowledge than less but it's right? like some weird fucking like zen well, subconscious thing where it's like somehow your brain knows that but you're not consciously aware that you know it i actually think that this formulation is the is the gettier problem so things that you possibly may know that you don't mm. know you know is the cow in the field but right Rumsf you but know Rumsfeld you know but, that the cow but, is in the field, right? But Rumsfeld's <laughs> unknown knowns are are themselves an unknown known, where he didn't even fucking realize he was saying that shit. <laughs> he didn't even realize that what he was describing was a Gettier problem. He was dodging. He was tap dancing when somebody was pressing him on that question. Right. He's like, "Yeah, it's shit that fucking no, don't know." But then you well, just I imagine knew it. that. Replace cow with WMD. Done. And that's essentially the, the Donald Rumsfeldian formulation of the Gettier problem. I, I, I disagree wholeheartedly. <laughs> I mean, this is going to take a real hard bend towards politics, but that's like what was going on there was not, man, I've looked out there, I've used my fucking satellites and all my tech, and I've seen those WMD, and I know they're there. And it turned out that your satellite was wrong, that you weren't looking at the WMD. What you are looking at was a fucking giant... 30 acre computer printout of a WMD but good news in the end there was WMD there what turned out was you didn't have satellite images <laughs> you didn't have shit you had some terrible fucking computer renderings of a truck that had a WMD on the back that you sent Colin Powell to the UN with right there, you didn't see WMDs, and then in the end, also, there weren't WMDs. Well, that's his original formulation of the unknown knowns, which are things that you think you know, no. that it turns out that you did Fuck not. did not think he knew that. <laughs> you don't think did, Rumsfeld do... thought that he knew? No. no. All those guys knew that they didn't know that. They had nothing. <laughs> they had a phone conversation with a dude who was like, hey, hey, Steve, uh, some guys are going to be coming by to inspect your shit later. Yeah? From where? Yeah, from the government. Okay. Yeah, so clean up that stuff outside. The stuff outside? Yeah, that big garbage pile. Clean it up. Okay. And then Colin Powell had to go in front of the UN and try and <laughs> convince them that that garbage pile those two guys were talking about was WMD. <laughs> That's what they had. What would Gettier say? Gettier Getty would say, fuck you for tr making us go to war over bullshit WMDs. Are we going to have to recut this entire episode so that I say Gettier instead of Gettier? No, no. no mix it up. Mix it up. No. I'm going to hold on. Everybody be quiet for a second. Gettier. No, I'm just going to edit Get that in over top. No, <laughs> I got a clean cut of it. I'm going to edit that in over top of every time we say Gettier. Gettier. <laughs> no, it's going to be my voice. Oh, it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> just, 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 so yeah. weird. Just, just, just to, just to put an exclamation point on the fact that you said it wrong the whole time. All right. <laughs> well, I don't. Okay, so I'm sorry I took us down that Rumsfeld rabbit hole. I thought it was I, I tangentially related. No, yeah, it I, is. To, it, yeah. It's it's interesting and heavily related. And another example of uh, knowing something when not knowing you know it. Um, Stephen Johnson in his book uh, Where Do Ideas Came From Come From yeah. had a, an anecdote where they he looked at the work of Charles Darwin, um, who in his in his um, you know public um, uh, presentation of the theory of evolution you know, like was able to pinpoint exactly a date based on the publishing of the Origin of, of Species, um, 
but if you go back for like 10 years before that, he, he wrote out all of the main tenets of natural selection and survival of the fittest and, and all of those those key points without ever having the theory. He had all the information. There was no, this is the subject of Stephen Johnson's book, there was no like lightning bolt um, sense of knowledge that you didn't know something before and now you do know something. But this, again, more from a neurological and kind of cultural point of view. Unless Thor's your neighbor. Unless Thor's your neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> then it's all lightning bolts. <laughs> but he, 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 ha- he, knew, he knew what the answer was without knowing uh, he knew. So he knew, he knew about evolution, but he didn't know that he knew it. Yeah, he didn't know he had a theory right. that explained this particular question, but he knew the answer that the theory gave him. It's weird. I mean, personally, I feel like I've had that experience where like, I've gone to see somebody give a lecture about something, and all of the individual ideas and aspects they're talking about, I know those things, but then the way that they like bring them together and summarize them into like a coherent worldview seems new. Mm, and yeah. it's like, what is that? Where like the whole like the first three quarters of the lecture, I'm like, know it, know it, agree, heard it before, mm. but they bring it together in some kind of like coherent. Isn't that just all now? Isn't all knowledge like that? Like it's just. But there's a new piece of knowledge that he didn't have. But that, is that, that an unknown known? I guess that's <laughs> that's what I'm saying though. Is like that seems like a description that at least I could yeah listen to and Rumsfeld, Darwin, and Gettier walk Eshel. into a. A bar. I punch him. So. <laughs> I buy Gettye a drink. <laughs> Who's who else? Darwin. Darwin. Oh, shake Darwin. his hand. Yeah, shake his hand. Yeah, uh, yeah. Married his first cousin. A little weird. And not mm. back then. Yeah. Uh, uh, but also, if you read the history of Darwin and his family, a lot of that marriage and the genetic problems that his children had, like, led to his theories on evolution and genetics. Like he experimented on his family well, by not, marrying not his in, cousin. Not, <laughs> not intentionally. Like, not like Pavlov. Yeah, like no, Pavlov's yeah. like, yeah, we experiment on right. our children like these dogs. Right. That, no, like Duchenne. I think that Pavlov might have not Did Pavlov, known. was that Pavlov or Skinner? Or both? No, I think both. I think yeah. Pavlov might not have owned dogs. Right, just kids. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so also a big, big year for, um, uh, uh, for Gettier in 1963, assassination of JFK. Oh, yeah. Um, pilot, you know, first episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> he had a lot on his plate. He had a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, well, he used no, Between to... assassinating the president and watching Doctor Who? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like, then writing that's his three-page paper. <laughs> that's a full calendar. <laughs> oh, man. Got to assassinate the president. Got to watch this fucking crazy sci-fi thing. I don't have time for this. Double spacing. Three-inch <laughs> three <inch> margins. <laughs> man, the SEO on these show notes are going to be awesome. <laughs> All right, everybody. I think that's it. Chad, anything else? No, I'm good. That, Mark, let's anything wrap else? Up. I'm awesome (laughs) in every sense of the word. That wraps it up for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the show and give us a rating in iTunes. As always, you can find us online at you'vegotitallwrong.net where you can find show notes for today's episode. You can also send us an email to feedback at you'vegotitallwrong.net with questions, comments, or recommendations for show topics. And you can also follow us on Twitter. I'm at Paco Allen. I'm at Chad Allen. And I'm at M. Saunders. <laughs>